to talk about something that's not a part of our sermon series because Jack told me not to. And so, <laughs> so basically what I want to talk about today is something that's so close to the sermon series, I hope you can't tell it's not a part of it, but I didn't use the book because Jack told me not to. <laughs> so we're going to talk about this today is found in Philippians 2, 1 through 11. This is a, a passage that uh, I worked at a Bible camp in Alaska, and this was our main theme the whole summer. So this text is a very special place in my heart. What we're first initially going to be talking about is unity and humility, based under the premise of the question, not in my healthy church member, close though, what does the church need from you? That's my sermon title today. What do we need as a church from you individually? We need unity and humility from each and every one of you, it's starting with us. Now, even though I'm only 22 years old, I have felt some strong times of unity and disunity in my life. I went to a school, uh, Northland International University, as many of you know, this church is connected to them, with Ken and Ethan and a lot of people, which I love because I feel like I'm home again. Um, and so at Northland, there are some times of extreme unity. We had, uh, which came in times where I thought the most disunity would happen. We were told two weeks before graduation this year that my school would be closing, and we were not going to be able to continue on anymore. And if you have been at Northland for any period of time, you will quickly learn how amazing of a place it is. It changed my life for eternity. It will. I, I, have, I will not be the same man I was there. We saw the influence on Ken and Ethan and all these guys who are at this church. Northland changes people. So it, it, it broke me to find out that what I went through was not going to be able to be had by future generations. But at that time, our leadership, Daniel Pats, he, he came in and he unified that student body in a way I didn't think possible. I thought we were going to just be like, it's done, okay, let's spread out, we're gone. But he came up and he stood before us in chapel and he said, I'm kind of mad right now. They closed my school. And we all thought, you can't see, you're the president. You're supposed to say, it's okay, we'll be fine. Because we're all mad, but you can't be. But it helped us understand, unified us that, yeah, we're a little upset about this right now. We're not going to do anything. We're not going to be in sinful anger. We're just kind of upset that our school is closed. And that unified us. I thought we, a lot of people felt we have to be immediately just so joyful about this. It wasn't really a joyful occasion. But Daniel unified us. He came in and spoke honesty to us. He came in and spoke truth to us. And we unified around Northland, and that last two weeks was the best two weeks of school I've ever had in my life. I have never felt so close to so many people I've barely talked to. Because all of a sudden, all of us were, hey, you remember that one kid? <laughs> yeah, I remember that one kid. Who knows what he was doing here? We had all these memories that we started to share and spiritual joys and disappointments and everything. It was crazy to see the unity of 200 to 300 different people coming together. It was awesome. It was just pure harmony. I've also felt times of disunity at the same place. Uh, before Ken came and Daniel came to Northland, uh, Northland decided, the board of directors decided they were going to fire Northland's president without telling anyone. And we had no idea who the board members were. We had never seen these people before in our lives. And all of a sudden they come on a campus, we still never saw them, but all of a sudden our president was gone. And Matt Olson is one of the godliest men I've ever met. And I was very disappointed to see them go. There was disunity there. Because no one knew what was going on. There was no openness. There was no communication. Nothing. It was all just some people came in and had their selfish wills and desires and said, I want this and it's better for us. God used it to be better for the school because he brought Daniel. But at the time, there was some serious disunity at Northland because no one knew what was going on. There was a lot of selfish decisions going on, a lot of dis not communication at all. That's what broke us up. But then we were unified again. I've also seen unity in the fact that everyone north of us in the UP and Green Bay are Packers fans. It's really annoying. It's super annoying. I walked in, I'm a Lions fan. I thought, hey, I'm in the UP, right next to the UP, I'll have some love and support. No, no. Everyone up there is Packers fans. So annoying. They have such unity around one stupid team. <laughs> it blows my mind. Everyone up there on Sunday, when Lindsay came up and visited me, I said, all right, first person to spot Aaron, a Rogers jersey wins, three seconds in. There's like 17 of them everywhere. Everyone up there loves the Packers. It unifies them. It's weird because it's something so little and so insignificant in the grand scheme of things, but people find such unity in that. And another time I felt disunity, 
uh, was a Greek project, and if you took Greek, you'll know that, that just disunifies everything. It just blows up your world. It's the hardest thing I've ever done in my life. And I had this guy, uh, he will remain nameless, but he decided he didn't want to show up to any of our project, our group time for our group project. He felt he didn't really need to be there. And it was like, all right. We had no unity in that group. Me and the other guy were so ticked that whole week. It's like, dude, where are you? He's like, we, we would text him, we'd message him, we'd call him. He would never answer anything. And then he would just show up like 45 minutes later. What's going on? What do you mean what's going on? We've been sitting here working without you. And then he came in and he said, here's my translation. We're going to use it instead of yours. And we're like, uh, no. No, we're not. And then I looked over and it was really good and we used it. <laughs> my point in all of that being... There's certain characteristics of unity and humility that unify people or break them apart. And those are just some things I thought about in my life and figured it would be good to break the ice, make me a little less nervous, and hopefully get you guys to laugh. So we're going to start in Philippians 2 on the idea of unity and ask ourselves the question, what is it? Uh, according to online etymology, which I like to look up, unity is defined as a state or property of being one, oneness, sameness, agreement, from the word unis, meaning one. A lot of terms of one in their unity, acting as one. In our text, we'll see, as we'll see later, Paul calls the people in Philippi to think and speak as one. That's how the Greek translates it. So that's what we're talking about here, this oneness, this unity, surrounding around one topic, like the Packers in stupid Wisconsin. They unify around one single thing, one. That's the word one that we're trying to get at. According to our text, as I said uh, earlier, it's also translated as soul join. That's a little stronger than the Packers. That's what we are as Christians. So that leads me to beg the question, why do we find churches to be the most disunified places? We come in and people are mad at each other. We come in and, you know, you look at the Protestant, our thing is Protestantism as a whole. I think there's like 40 or 50 different denominations because we disagree on some little things. Some, I agree, are worth splitting over, but some are we get fussy. That's what my dad always says. And he won't say mad or frustrated. He just says, some people just get fussy. It's just such a nice word. But that's what he says. Why do we then, when we have Christ, the pinnacle of history, the thing that drives us all, why do we decide that we don't need unity in the church body? And it's okay to back talk about people and to slam the pastor and slam the dude who did worship because his voice isn't that good and all that kind of stuff. We find that to be kind of okay. It's just kind of how we talk in church. But you wouldn't find that if you get a meeting of Packers fans together and you say, hey, Aaron Rodgers is the bomb. Like, yeah, man, let's go. We say, this is kind of how we do things. No, that's not how we do things at our church, so you guys are wrong. I don't know why we do that. We're going to talk about you. We're going to look into unity and see maybe you watch some reasons why we do that. Now, what I like to preface, and the teenagers can tell you this as well, the few times I've taught them, I like to get ourselves set in the mind of we are the church in Philippi reading a letter from Paul. Otherwise, you, we're just reading words. But if you understand that this church would be anxiously awaiting a letter from Paul, Paul's in prison at this time. They, they want to hear from Paul. When they get this letter, they're reading it, and this is Paul's words. This is what you live by. And we read the Bible sometimes, and I do this just as much as some other people do. But we've heard the passage before. It's just familiar. It loses its grip when we read it. So this letter was written by Paul, a real human being like us, written to a church in Philippi like ours. And you'll say, duh, Wes, I know that. Is that what they taught you in Bible college? Like, yeah, we were pretty deep. We learned about Paul. He's a person. Yeah, amen. Good lesson. So we see Paul is a real person writing a real letter to real people. Think about being a person in this church you are hearing these words for the first time. This is what Paul has for you guys. So in, in Philippians 2, verse 1, this is how he starts. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Now Paul is writing this from prison. And what, what Paul cares about is the unity of the church. That's what he's right here. He's saying, if, there is any, if you guys have any love, if you take anything that Christ says seriously, if we have any fellowship whatsoever, please. And then he's going to go on and say, complete my joy by being. We'll get to that. But Paul is behooving these people, one of my 
favorite words. He's imploring to them by saying, if you guys care about me at all, at any ounce of love for me, complete my joy by being. So we'll get to that. But what he's saying, if there's any encouragement from Christ, is the first verse. Basically saying, if there's any commandment or encouragement of Christ has any value to you, that's where he starts it off with. And I think most people would say, okay, yeah, if Christ is telling us to do something, that's important. So he's giving us our attention here. If you take what Christ has to say seriously, then he continues on. If there's any consolation of love, if you truly love me, that's what Paul's saying, or God, if there's any fellowship of the Spirit, if we have any fellowship whatsoever, fellowship of the Spirit, Christians, if there's any fellowship, if you, again, he's saying affection or compassion, reiterating again, this, this is poetic literature, it's very beautiful how Paul is writing. And he says, if you guys care about me, which we know that they do, the church in Philippi has helped Paul out before. Uh, they care about him. So what he's saying is, guys, you know you care about me, so here, if you care at all, and I know I'm saying that a lot, but it's important to, for for us to understand why he's prefacing as well. This is he loves these people. He wants them to know what's important to him. If you love me at all, there's any fellowship between us. If you take anything that Christ says seriously, complete my joy by being of the same mind. So if you care about me at all, if you want to make me happy, which I think they would. It's like if your dad asks you to do something, you want to make your dad happy. When Jack asks me to do something, I try to make him happy. I like Jack. He's a pretty big guy. This is what he's saying. If you guys care about me, please. What I care about most from the church is if they are unified. However, we can say that here. We're, Paul's in prison. He's saying all I care about in prison is that you guys are unified here. I, he could say what I really care about is getting out of this prison cell because I'm uncomfortable what I care about is you guys paying my bail. Are you guys stepping in for me when you did it? No, he says, what I want from you guys is nothing for me, but all for you guys to be unified for Christ. That's the man of Paul. That's pretty awesome. I wish I spoke like that, but I don't. So Paul's basically saying, if you care about me, please, please be unified. Paul cares that much about unity, more than his own personal care or personal comfort that the church is unified above all. Do we care about the church that much? Do we see the importance of the church? Christ certainly knows the importance of the church, and he begs us to see it. He gives us a perfect example, and every husband and wife says, this is me to the church. The church is very, very important. So do we care above almost all else that our local body is unified around Christ? Do we? Honestly. I ask myself that same question every time I read this passage. Is this what I really care about? Do I care that Faith Baptist Church is unified? My answer is yes. I really do. I want to see this church be more unified. I want to see this church grow. I've only been here for a month and I love it. This place is awesome. Lindsay and I feel so at home, so welcome. It's home for us. And so we're ready to get working. And so we care that this church is unified. And I pray that you guys will as well. When it comes to mind, what is important to me? That my local body is unified around Christ. That should be one of the answers. And if it's not, I hope that what the Bible says will convince you otherwise. Paul has another four short statements. Again, this is this is, this is on purpose. Paul's not just writing four little things, writing four little things and helping it go together. Paul's writing these on purpose. It's a, they're bracketing something. It's for our minds to draw attention to four and then another four statements. So Paul's other four statements, little four statements say, Complete my joy by being one of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. He's, he's repeating himself a lot because something's important. Um, my Bible professors would tell you, if you see something once in the Bible, it's important. If you see it repeated, you better pay attention. The author's trying to draw your mind to something. So he's saying here, Complete my joy by being in the same mind. That's where the it literally says, the text says, thinking the same thing. That unified, where our brains and our minds work together for the same goal. Having the same love, having mutual love for each other. So when you walk into this place, you see family. You walk in, you know, I get to see Jack, and I see Lee, and I get to see Julie. Julie's like one of my favorite people in the world. I love Julie. We have so much fun in the office together. We get a lot of work done, Jack, don't worry. We walk in, we see all these people, and we say, Hallelujah, I'm home. I feel safe when I'm here. I have this mutual love where I come in and I see people. It's, Man, it's good to see you. 
genuinely, man, it's good to see you. And then they say the same thing to you, and it's like a big old family reunion every time we walk into this door. That's what Paul wants from the church. Being in full accord, again, being in complete agreement with each other. This is really hard. I don't know if you guys are getting that sense, but I, this is going to be a difficult process. Paul, you're asking us to do a lot. But that's okay. It's good to work for unity in a relationship. That's kind of what marriage is about, I think. I'm only a month in. I'm starting to learn some stuff. <laughs> starting to learn a couple things. It's hard work. That's what it's supposed to be. And of one mind, again, stating, thinking the same. So Paul's given us some things to look at. We say, okay, okay, that's good. Now what does this look like in a church? So turning your Bibles to Acts 2, we're going to look at the first church, we're looking at the day of Pentecost. So it's good to read these things and to get them to know, okay, I need to be unified in one mind. But it's also very practical to know what it looks like. And so we see an example of unity within the church in Acts 2. So as we know, this is talking about Pentecost. There's a lot of great stuff going on. Peter obviously preached an amazing sermon because a lot of people got saved. And the, the beginning of the church is coming. The Holy Spirit is coming down. I mean, can you imagine the excitement at the church at this time for the name of Christ? The Holy Spirit's in the building. And that's kind of sounds funny, but it's true. He is. He's in the building there. There's tons of fire. There's huge wind going around. 5,000 people are getting saved. Peter's standing up and preaching a gut-wrenching sermon that these people at the end and say they are pierced to the heart at what they had done. And he says, this Jesus whom you crucified. And it's just, you're so right, Peter. They were just ripped at the word of God. How often are we just torn to the soul about what God has said and we realize we're not doing it? When we weep, when we say, I've just messed up so bad. When you get over it, eventually you keep moving on, but there is definitely a time and place for serious remorse over sin, being pierced to the heart by the word of God when we read it. Saying, God, please forgive me for what I have done. And that's what these people say. They they hear this Jesus that they were supposed to see as their coming king, and they said, crucify him. Crucify him, they found him that way. Oh, he blew it. They are pierced to the heart. So what was their reaction? Yes, they were broken. But then afterwards, we see in verse 42 to 47, we'll read it here. It says, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship and to the breaking of bread and prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done to the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. So who's signing up to sell all their property to give money to someone who needs it in the church? Because that's what the first church did. That's unity. That's saying, I see a need for someone. I'm going to take care of that right away. I have surplus. I have more than I need. So I'm going to unify this church by saying, I have more than what I need, but these people don't. So I'm willing to sell all that I, I'm willing to sell what I have in order to give to them. But you, see, you see in the text that they had all things in common. So when they were united in Christ, as in them in Christ, they were saved, then they realized, there's a bunch of other people who are saved as well. Let's take care of each other. This is, I mean, we don't have the persecution coming from the government. We don't have all this coming down. But they realized we need to stick together. We, we have this newfound, like, joy and this newfound common ground between the two of us. Let's get together and do something about it. These people, hey, he's saved too. He's along with us. He's poor. He can't feed his kids. The other guy says, hey, I have a bunch of extra land. Let me sell it, and I'll take care of his financial needs. These people don't have enough food. I have a bunch of extra crops. Maybe I can be okay without it. Maybe I can't. I know God wants me to serve him. I'll take out my stuff and give it to him. That's what they were about. They had all things in common. Now, these are real people, too, remember. These people were here. They got saved. This is actually, this is real. That's amazing what they did. That's, that's what a unified church looks like. They see the needs of other people, and they say, okay, let me take care of that for you. They have all things in common. They live together, which we all don't have to move into a commune. I mean, that would stink. Let's be honest. Literally stink. All of us in one room. But we don't have to move together, but we do need to have the sense that we, when we come in here, we are here for a single purpose. We are here to praise God. We are here to lift each other up. 
That's what we're here for. That's what those people, they got it. Acts 2, these, this church, they understood it. And they understood also that means you have to eat food together, which Baptists are great at. So I can't wait to eat some food together with you guys sometime soon, maybe. I don't know. But there is, there is unity because they clearly loved each other. They clearly loved their family, their church family. I like to just replace the word church with family. That's what we're supposed to be. And they wanted to see their family grow. And God blessed that. I want to see our family grow. I want to see more people come in these doors and experience the same kind of love that I've experienced when Lindsay and I moved here. I want people to come in and be blessed why when Jay and the worship team come up here, because our worship is awesome. I want them to come here, Jack and Jay, preach. And whoever the new guy is that comes in and preach. I want them to come in and experience what I have because it's so awesome. We should all want that. We should be working to make this church a place where we say, I want everyone to come to my church. Not, yeah, they can come to my church, but I don't know. No, it's I want people here because they need to be here because I love my family. That's what I want our heartbeat to be as a church. And that starts with me and with us in leadership first. And I can guarantee you, Jack and Jay, they think the same thing that I do. And so does Lee. So we're going to move on. That's, that is what they humbly, this church, they humbly served each other. So it leads us to our next portion of the text in Philippians concerning humility. So the first thing we need from our church, we need to be unified. We need to put away our selfish desires and work for each other. That's why it says back in the text, you get back to Philippians. I remember Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians by Go Eat Popcorn. I don't know if you guys ever heard something like that. That's how I was taught it when I was in school. I'll always remember Go Eat Popcorn. So we go back in, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count each other more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. That's unity, but now we're talking about humility, which is the same text he's talking about both. So humility, what is it? We're going to go back to this. Like I said, I like questions. It's very, you know, unity, what is it? What does it look like? That's what we're doing here. Humility, what is it? Dictionary definition says a modest or low view of one's own importance. I think it's not necessarily thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. Um, not always looking out for number one, which our culture tells you is exactly what you're supposed to do. This is very countercultural here, what I'm about to talk about, and that's good. We should be countercultural. I love those cheesy plan words. Like, you know, people don't care about how much you know until they know about how much you care. You know, not thinking of yourself less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. Those things, they click with me. I like those. So what does humility look like? To give a personal example, one that I know you guys well know, when I hear humility, and he's going to hate me for saying this, I think of Lee, Monday. I walked into the church the first time, and Ken greeted me at the door, and Lindsay and I have never met any of these people. We have no idea what's going on. We're just walking into this door the first time. So Ken shakes my hand, we walk in, we're talking a little bit, and I see this man pushing the vacuum. I was like, oh, the church janitor. Cool. That's nice. They have a church janitor. And Ken says, hey, this is Lee Monday. I was like, hey, how you doing, Lee? He goes, oh, correct me. And I don't know, maybe this is true. He said, this is Dr. Lee Monday. I said, oh, doctor. He goes, oh, this is, this is Dr. Lee Monday who wrote a book. I'm like, oh, okay, he's got a book published. That's pretty cool. Well, this is Dr. Lee and all these other impressive things about Lee. I'm like, man, this dude's sweet. What are you doing vacuuming? Shouldn't you be out doing something more important? But what Lee cares about is that our church is clean. That's humility. When I saw it, I was like, man, that is so cool. I love that guy. I went home, that was when I told, one of the first things I told my parents, said, you wouldn't believe this dude named Lee? I thought he was the janitor. Turns out he's the chairman of the deacons. <laughs> I screwed up big time. Just glad I didn't say, hey, janitor, how you doing? Like, yikes. When I think of humility, I think of Lee. He's that kind of guy. He's probably taking me right now for saying that. I can see him back there. He's not chilling himself. But that, again, he's not sitting there like, yeah, I sweep the floors. What's up? He's thinking, yeah, I like to serve my church because he values our church. He has a sense of humility about him that's very, very admirable. And so, again, we look, okay, what, are, what does our text say about humility? I see, I see it as twofold. First, it's shown as what verses 2 and 3 say. It says, or what 3 and 4 say, excuse me. 
Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Basically, if these were life verses for everyone, and we all acted more like Jesus, life would be a whole lot easier. Because if we all looked out for each other, I'd be looking out for Tori, Tori would be looking out for me, everyone would be looking out for each other. None of us have to worry about our own needs, because we know the church is there to take care of us. That's how we should feel when we walk in the door. I feel that way when I walk in the door. I feel I can come in and talk to anyone and know if, if they could meet my need, they would take care of it. I have had so many people come up to me and shake my hand and say, Hey, Wes, if you need anything, let me know. And I see the look in their eyes, and it's real. They're not just saying that to be nice because I'm the new guy and whatever. You guys mean it when you tell me that. I value that so much. So I, I, I commend you for being like that. We, we do a good job at this, but there's always more work to do. I know my tendency is to think that people need this, and I'm doing okay. I think a lot of us get that when we hear a message being preached, it's like, yeah, hey, that's good, but I know that guy needs it. Ooh, let me tell you. I want us to read this and be like the church in Acts 2 and be cut to the heart. When it says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others more important than yourselves. Look at your life and say, oh, man, i got to fix something. Because we all have, i got to fix something. You can ask my wife, i got to fix something. There's something going on where I need to change it. We all need to change it. So read that and be pierced. Let the word do its work. It should be piercing. That's what we know about. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. Let the word pierce. Especially if you're married, you know that we need to be looking out for the interests of others more than ourselves. I need to learn that. I, I, I do okay, I think. Lindsay might be able to tell you different. I, I think I do okay. I try to, you know, read her, but again, I don't know how to read her. We've been dating for four and a half years before we got married, and I thought I knew her pretty well. And then I started living with her and realized, I don't know you very well. <laughs> and it's all been good. Don't worry, I'll never speak bad of my wife in front of everyone. I'll never speak bad of my wife ever. But it takes humility to learn that we have to look out for other people more than ourselves. And that's not how we are built. That's not how our society tells us to live. Our society says, go get it, you're the man, pick yourself up by your own bootstraps and take care of business. That's not God's plan for us. God's plan says, you're weak, you need me, and you need people. So get over yourself, son. I have to, I have to speak to myself strongly, so that's just how I say it. Get over yourself. You're not that big of a deal. I'm going to think, yeah, man, I'm a pastor. Like, yeah, but you're in Linden, Michigan. Who even knows where that is? <laughs> That's what I first saw. You know, before I came here, there's another. I was looking at other places that were in Alaska, and I was like, ooh, Alaska, that'd be awesome. And then I get a call from some Ken McMaster, and he says, we have a church in Linden, Michigan. I said, where is that? I should know about that because Dunbar, Wisconsin is where I lived for four years. Where is that? I like places where you have to ask that question. Anyway, let's get back to it. So, we need to serve each other in humility in our church, and our tendency is not to do so. But, verse 5 says, having this mind among you that is yours in Christ Jesus. Paul is saying, you can do this, actually. So, you know what I'm saying? I don't know if I can do that. I'm not built that way. But Paul says, oh, yes, you can. You have Christ. You can do You can do it. No, you're not the one doing it. Because it's your mind in Christ Jesus. Very important. Christ allows us to serve each other, to not look after our own, own interests, but also to the interests of others. Christ gives us that ability to do so. So you can. And you should. When you have to, the Bible tells you to. So genuinely, what Paul is asking us to do is to genuinely look for the needs and desires of others around you and notice how much your life is going to change when you do so. That's what we're built for. And so you're going to find a whole lot more joy when you're walking around and trying to find other people and meet their needs, opposed to when you're walking around and saying, you're not meeting my needs, you're not meeting my needs, you're not meeting my needs, you're not... We're going to fall apart if we do that. We need to be looking out for other people's needs. You need to walk into this church and say, how can I serve you, not how can you serve me? Walk into this church saying, God, I need to be changed and broken so I can serve these people. Not God, you need to change and break those people so they'll serve me. This, this is straight to us. And I only say those things because that's how I think. I'm not accusing you guys of anything. I'm simply saying that is a first tendency of mine is to think other people probably need this. I'll need it a little bit, but other people probably do. 
Paul is being directed at us to change something about us. Because this church will fail. If every single if every single one of you is not doing this, our church will fall apart. Every single one of you is important to our church. Every single member that comes in, everyone's a pillar. If we don't have every pillar, our building will fall. Simple as that. Like Jack said last week, they're bricks. We build on top of each other. If there's bricks that aren't where, or we're a body, and there's parts that aren't working, we don't function. We break. We need every single one of you to come in here each day and not look after your own interest, but also to the interest of others. That's what we need. And I want to be the one to do it first, and Jack and Jay want to do it first. So you keep us accountable on that, and we'll keep you accountable on that. That's how it works. It's a beautiful thing. The second way that humility is displayed in this text is the single greatest way you can do it. And it's to say, let's look at Jesus' life. It's never a mistake to look at Christ's life to see how you can change, because you will always need to change something when you look at the life of Christ. So we see here in verse 5, it says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. And one of my favorite texts, three or four verses, is coming up right here. Listen to this and be amazed at what Almighty God in the form of Christ did. Although he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Christ, who has so much more that he can boast on his own standard, like we so oftentimes do, comes down and says, I'm going to be a servant. I am going to be born in the most humble way a God can be born. In a stable, the two people who Mary and Joseph weren't anything to be, or anything to cough at. They weren't very well-known people. They didn't have a lot of political clout or anything like that. They were just regular people, born in a regular time, not even in a proper place to be born. Not only would it be weird if a king did that, if we knew that the king of England was going to be having a kid and they had it in some stable out by where uh, Karen lives in England, then uh, we'd be like, what are you doing? You're the king. Like, take care of business, man. Like, go to this nice hospital. Get people to take care of you. Jesus comes down and says, you know, I'm going to be born in this place where no one's going to... I was just told to go into a stable. Mary Joseph was just told to go into a stable and be born. He didn't come in. He could have come down as a 33-year-old man. He could come down however he wanted. He's God. He could come down and say, you all will serve me now. And everyone bows. Because he's God. He could do whatever he wants. Imagine the most powerful thing someone can do. Quintuple it and God can take care of it. He comes down in the form of a little baby in a servant form to be in our form in weakness. That's how God chose to come down to us. If Jesus is doing stuff like that, we certainly need to be doing stuff like that to be lowly, to think of ourselves less. Christ came down and lived his entire life on this planet thinking of other people's needs. He died for us. He died for us. That's a big deal. Oftentimes the gospel we say, yeah, we preach the gospel, we love the gospel. But Christ, God, died for you and me. Who are we? But he did so. And he died on the cross for those who pinned him on the cross. If someone hurts me, the last thing I'm going to do is serve them back. I want to hit them back. Christ was pinned to the tree and he said, I'm dying for you. I'm going to take your sin that you just committed. I'll take that away. It's amazing. I think of Romans 5, 6 through 8 when I read this. That text says, For while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. It takes on a whole new meaning when you look at what we need to do in the church. If Christ the Almighty chooses to do this, why do we think we have any sort of cloud or standing amongst people? Almighty God decided to be weak amongst people, and we rise up and say, we need to be the top dog to be successful and to be cool and to be worthwhile. We got it really wrong. Our society has it really wrong. And we need to show them the difference in church when we come in and we're looking to serve each other. If we have an unbeliever walking these doors, he says, man, these people, they just never stop asking me how I'm doing. They want to take me out to lunch. They care about me. Why do they care about me? That's what people need to say. Why do you even care about me? Let me tell you why. It's the perfect way to talk to you about the gospel. 
they should come to this door and almost be annoyed at how much we want to take care of them and, and ask how they're doing because we love them and we see their need and we humbly serve them. Jesus was fully God and fully man and yet emptied himself. That's what this, this text is talking about in verse 7. It says, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. A lot of heresies are started by trying to explain that, so I'm simply going to say it's God. He can do what he wants. That's how God was. Jesus was fully God, fully man, and he emptied himself. I don't get that. It's the kenosis theory. It's in theology. A lot of heresies are started around it. So I'm going to try to not speak heresy to you guys. My dad always told me that's good to start. Don't speak heresies. Then you'll have a good sermon. So I'm just going to avoid trying to go into that deeply altogether because it's just a mess. It's good. I would encourage you to study it, but I'm not going to talk about it up here. Jesus didn't count equality with God something to be grasped. If we go back to the first Adam, the first man, his temptation was, if you eat this, you will be like God. And he wanted that. He sought to be like God. Jesus says, who is God, and who could very well come down as God, did not count equality with God something to be grasped. I think there's, I think there's a parallel there. Christ being the second Adam, and Adam being the first Adam. This first Adam wanted to be God. Jesus, in order to sacrifice for our sins, did not count equality with God something to be grasped. So he emptied himself to become a human to take care of us. That's awesome. That makes me want to stand up and clap and jump around. I'm a little more high energy. You guys don't have to do that. Jesus took the form of servant. Picture the most powerful person you know, politically, monetarily, however you so choose. How often do you think they decide to serve other people? Most of the time, they have their own servants. And they say, you go do this, and you do that. And I'm certainly not going to take care of that, so you do it. I'm too good for that. Jesus, who had the most ability to do that, said, hey, I'm actually going to take the lowest form. Not only am I going to become a human, which in comparison to God is pretty stinky, I'm going to become the lowest there. I'm going to be someone who the Bible said had no form, no nothing to be recognized. He went all the way down, and then even down farther to die, and then even more to die on the cross, which the Romans, who were great at pain and death, had concocted to be the most painful. He did all of that for you, who the whole time didn't even care. That's what we were doing. Jesus was over here dying for us, and we're just walking over, not caring, not even knowing, even sometimes hating that God who chose to die for us. That's servanthood, brothers and sisters. That's what we need to be like. We need to be willing to go to the farthest degree for each other. Not just serve as in, you know, I'll open the door for you, but hey, let me open the door for you and genuinely ask you, hey, how are you doing? It's not weakness to tell someone, I've had the worst week. What's going to happen? You're going to be encouraged by your brother and sister, man, I'm just, oof, I wouldn't want that. Of course you want that. Be open with people and ask you, how are you doing? If you're not doing well, tell them. This is your family. They care about you. We go to the farthest degree for people. And not only did Jesus do that, one story that I find fascinating, and I will always do this, is you go to the Lord's Supper, and you go, they're up there eating. And Jesus knows at that time that one who is eating at the table with him is going to betray him. And he knows when he gets taken into prison that all of his friends are going to leave him. He will be alone. So what does he do? He washes their feet. If I knew, if I was sitting in the room with my best friends, and I knew that one was going to betray me in some way or another, and all these people were going to abandon me the second something went wrong, I would stand up and I would tee off on them and go, what do you guys think you are doing to me? Don't you know? Jesus says, let me wash your dirty, nasty feet and serve you. I know Lindsay would never wash someone's feet. She hates feet. <laughs> but we see Jesus. He says, you know, not only to wash these feet, people who leave me, but he's sitting there. Imagine you are sitting on one knee, and you are washing the dirty feet back there. They have shoes or socks. They have sandals on nasty dirt roads. And you're washing this guy's feet. And you know in the next five, six hours, however many, he's going to go to someone else and betray you and lead to your death. Picture yourself there. I certainly wouldn't want to wash his feet. But Jesus said, hey, let me wash them for you. Let me serve you in that way. That's amazing. And if washing those disciples' feet was not enough to show us humility, then he went and died for them. 
And we see Christ's humility again displayed in his prayer in the garden. He's not praying for himself. He's praying for other people. If you knew you were about to face execution, the most torturous death that they could concoct at the time, I'd be praying for myself. Saying, God, if there's a way to numb all my pain receptors, please do. I don't want to feel this. Jesus is saying, God, when I'm gone, let them know that I'm still with them. Look out for them. Protect them. Care for them. He's not even thinking about himself. And even when he does, he says, nevertheless, God, your will be done. Do we pray like that? Focusing on other people? Focusing on the will of God? Or is it, God, I I did not prepare for this sermon. Ooh, I need some help. Or I'm not ready for this. I'm not ready for that. I need this. I need, I need, I need. We're so focused on us. Paul says, look out for the interest of others. Jesus says, follow my example as I died for you. Humility is really hard. But it's something we're called to do. It's a mindset that we need to get into where we are not thinking about other people. We're not thinking about, excuse me, not thinking about ourselves anymore. But we're looking, actively looking for other people. And to see what they want and what they need. When you look and you see someone's face, I don't know if you guys can read faces, but when people... Just sit, just sad. Not smiling, not really talking. We say, how's it going? And you want to say, hey, what's wrong? Genuinely concerned. What's wrong? Tell me. Let's talk. What's wrong with that? I feel like our culture says it's, it's not appropriate to show weakness anymore. If you just got to say good and walk on with it and hope that, you know, when you start crying, someone will be there to help you. If we're doing that in, the, in this church, we missed it. We should be a church when you walk in and you have had just a filthy, stupid week. You come in and there you know there are people here who are going to take care of you. They're going to listen. They're going to care about you. You should be humble enough to tell someone about it. And I am the worst of the worst at this. Because, of course, being a man, you're not allowed to show any weakness. That'd be tough. Not allowed. And Jesus says No. Weakness and humility is actually the best thing you can possibly do. So let's be weak and humble together and actually know that we need each other. We do. I need you guys. That's as simple as that. And it's okay. It's a good thing. It's a very good thing. So what does humility and selflessness look like in the church? we go back to Acts 2. We're going to pick up again in verse 45. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together, which means, means they go to church all the time. So go to church. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all people. The Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. They were willing to sell their own stuff. That's amazing. I I don't have a lot of stuff to sell, but if I had money, I'd give it to you guys. And we need to be willing to do so to other people. We need to be able to meet the needs, even if it has nothing to do with money or food or property. What if someone just needs a hug? You know, comfortable to hug each other, right? I think so. Someone just needs a hug to know you love them. It's as simple as that. It's not this huge, difficult, I need to go out and sell my land. I mean, if you want to, great. That's awesome. Go go above and beyond. But if you want to start simple, go out today, find one person, look them in the eye, and genuinely ask, how are you doing? And if they say, good, tell me what's really going on. They do that as many times as you have to until they actually tell you what's going on. Be annoying. Genuinely ask, what, how are you doing? Let me serve you in some way. Let us be unified until we're talking about what's going on and fixing our problems. Otherwise, we fall apart. And I don't want the church to fall apart. I love this place. And when we do this, when you go out and you want to do this for other people, our world is going to say, what do you want in return? Well, people are always going to think you got an angle. I don't know. I do the same thing. People do something for me. It's like, okay, do I need to do that? What's going on? 
A lot of people are going to think you have an angle. I don't have an angle. And my angle is to let you know that Jesus cares about you. Maybe that is our angle. We're saying, you know, this homeless man, maybe he needs five bucks. What's five bucks to us? I mean, really? You spend five bucks on Diet Coke or candy or something. You're like, hey, you can give me that five. You can give that guy five bucks if he needs it. People are always going to say, why are you doing that? What, what's different? Why do you even care? And boom, you have a beautiful opportunity to tell them exactly why you care. But our culture is going to tell us we are being stupid for doing this. Sell what you have for other people? Are you kidding me? You should be taking from that other person. You're more powerful than they are. Who cares? That's yours if you want to go get it. That's that not the American dream. Christ tells us, look out for the interest of other people. Sell what you have for them. Serve that person who can do absolutely nothing for you in return. And don't expect something in return. I mean, what do we have to give back to Christ when he died for us? We had nothing. He died for us. And he knew he could, we could never give him enough back for what he did. But he still did it. That's the giving and the serving that we need to do for one another. I feel like I'm talking about the same thing over and over again, but it's really important. It's very, very important. We see in verse 46, back in Acts 2, they took meals together house by house. They had each other over for fellowship together, and they were glad about it. They were happy. They were sincere. So when they had people over, they were like, hey, yeah, we're, we're having these people over. I can't wait to serve them and give them more food than they probably could ever imagine. People here are good about that. Like, have me over to your house. I've had a lot of people. It's awesome. But they were so happy to have other members over of the body to have them over to their house to break bread and praise God. That's what they were excited about, to have each other over and not just, hey, on Sundays I see you, on Wednesdays I see you, and if I see you during the week, ooh, I don't want to see you. They actively were ha- they were happy to see each other during the week. They were happy to be with each other, I said, day by day in the temple. They were happy to be there every day serving each other and having people over to their house. So the real question is, who's having me over for lunch today? So no one? All right. Clearly not live in verse 46, though. Hmm? Yikes. Should have talked about it more. So what? Another good question to ask. So, yeah, I can go out and serve because Jesus has done that to me, but it's just as easy to not. I want to tell you that you shouldn't call yourself a Christian then. You're not willing to go and serve other people in order to unify your church body. You've missed it. Really, really bad. So for me, what I want to challenge you guys today, I like that Ken walk down here, so I want to do it too. <laughs> Feels fun to move. Go out today, in the church, in your family, whoever. Like I said earlier, look someone in the eye and genuinely say, how are you doing today? Can I meet any of your needs? And if someone asks you, answer with all sincerity of heart. I'm actually not doing very well something's going on here, could you pray with me about it? And then pray right there. That's what's going to build our church. If we take time and genuinely invest in each other. So when I come to church, I care about Jack. I've been praying for Jack all week. Because I love him. Because we're together. This is our church. I hope you guys have been praying for Lindsay now. I want to be praying for all of you. Why? Because we love each other. Because this is our family. This is home. You should come to this door and feel safe. That's what the church needs to be. So I would, I would beg you, and this is coming from someone who's just come here, and I know that we're already doing so well at this, but even more, desire to look at other people's needs is more important as your own. Go home. Husbands, cook for your wives. Wives, let them do the dishes too. <laughs> and vacuum and do everything else if that's what you do. You know, kids, maybe you should cook instead of your parents. Teens, do the same thing. Take out the garbage without your parents having to ask you. Genuinely go home and look to do something for your family members without being asked, without being begged, without, you know, yelling at each other. Genuinely decide today that I am going to work to make my family more unified and humble by serving you first, not by waiting for them to serve me. You guys go serve each other first. And then once you got it in your family, they come do it here. Once you got it here, go do it 
in the Fenton London area, and then in Michigan, and then in America, however, where you, wherever you choose to go. But we need to make sure our families are healthy. Serve, love, be unified in your family, and then come here and serve, love, and unify this church. We're already doing a good job, but we can do so much better. So I want for you guys just serve and love each other. When we see the world's going to tell us, you're going to end up nowhere when you do that. You look back in the text, what happened to Christ? He was given a name that was above all other names. So that his name, every knee would bow and every tongue would confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's what you, that's your reward. It's not this life of misery. We will not be glorified as Christ was, but we certainly, when we come to the end of our lives, when we have lived a life of serving each other and constantly looking out for other people, we will be glorified. We'll hear those words. Well done, my good and faithful servant. Notice the last word, sir. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I pray that you will break all of us from our stubborn, prideful selves. That we will desperately seek to serve other people. That we will desire above all else to make sure that our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ are taken care of before us. Lord, this task is impossible if not for your Holy Spirit and your work in us. So I pray that you will work in every one of our hearts powerfully so we will be changed people. Lord, I pray for this church that you will unify us around your Son, Christ. That you will help us to come together and to be humbly serving each other and so that this church will grow. Lord, I know that you have great plans for this place. I pray that you will help us to continually grow and serve you. We proudly sing in your son, Jesus' name. Amen. Stand with us. The last song we're going to sing today is All I Have is Christ. There's nothing more that we can claim in this world that's going to help us. There's nothing in this world that's going to satisfy us apart from Jesus. He set the example for us so we can live with him. So now we claim back to him, God, you are all that I have. You are all that I need.